is the second in the series of sermons on Genesis. If you wanted to catch the first one, it's at our website, rrpca.org. Just click on the sermons tab. We're carrying on here now from chapter 1 and verse 6 of Genesis. Genesis 1, verse 6. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind. And this tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Oh God, open this text to our understanding and our worship of you as the creator and also the redeemer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll start on a down note but I hope soon to turn your attention to better things. The Apostle Paul wrote 2 Corinthians 13 and 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. At a recent elders meeting, we were talking, are, are we examining ourselves as we should? Do we count the cost of what it means to be a Christian? And this verse was alluded to. And I just give you an example of a one response to that question coming from the best known founder of the theory of evolution in the mid-1800s in England, Charles Darwin. I quote, in my most extreme fluctuations, I have never been an atheist in the sense of denying the existence of a God. I think that generally, and more and more so as I grow older, but not always, that an agnostic would be the most correct description of my state of mind, unquote. Darwin failed to meet the test. Christ was certainly not in him since Darwin didn't even know if a God existed. And so Darwin was not in the faith. 
And the dour, downbeat result, which I referred to at the beginning of the sermon, he wrote in his own handwriting, which I saw reproduced this past week electronically, I quote, but I am very poorly today and very stupid and hate everybody and everything, unquote. Charles Darwin. It doesn't seem to me that Charles Darwin was enjoying life. How about you? He was quite down on himself, considering himself very stupid, meaning that he felt it necessary to lash out at everybody and everything, and even to hate them, to prop himself up. I guess that comes from thinking you were descended from an ancestor of the apes. Rather stupid to think that, in my opinion, but that's what he theorized and that's what he believed and the result is you get no God that he knows about, no creator, so it must have all happened by chance, including Darwin himself. He's here by chance. Who tries to make himself better by hating others. This is the fruit of not having a life in Christ. Do you enjoy life? Are you in the faith? Test yourself. Do you not realize this about yourself if you are a believer, that Jesus Christ is in you by faith in his name? It says it here, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. It also says it in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Your hope is to know that the Christ who is in you is the same Son of God who created everything by his word at the beginning and the same word who is bringing you into eternity. Christ in you is your hope of glory and this is a great privilege that we know that this Christ who brings us spiritual life is also the one who brought earthly life, physical life. We read in chapter 1 and verse 11, if you have your Bibles open there, look at it. Verse 11, then God said, let the earth bring forth grass. And then in verse 20 of chapter 1, then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. And then 21, so God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moved. And then verse 26, then God Verse 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth a living creature according to its kind. And then verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So this is a chapter that's about life. When you are just reading verses 3 through 13, you may not catch that right away. But the whole drift of the chapter is toward life. It's about life. God is glorified in his physical creation, but as God is glorified most in the apex of his creation, even men and women created in his image. Darwin, by natural selection, is not able to describe the purpose of his life. Other than this world is bare competition but he has no rational explanation 
for the complexity even of a cilia on a bacterium, much less a human being with a soul. So here's the alternative. The first day, verses 3 through 5, is the creation of light. Life is prepared for. The second day, the creation of the sky. There's room for life. Verses 6 through 8. And the third day, land and plants. Life takes root. Verses 9 through 13. And this alternative has the ring of truth. For it is found here in the word of God, the Bible, which is Jesus' own trusted Old Testament. The book, the scriptures, which he believed. It's the scriptures that he proved by his life and fulfillment of them. And it is the scriptures vindicated by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. His coming to life and giving us new life by faith in him points back to the life that was created by him at the first day. Last week, we saw that before there was anything, there was love in the Trinity. As the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loved one another, that love spilled over into the creation of everything that it is. And we see that Trinity here in verse 1, in the beginning, God the Father, we believe and confess in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. In verse 2, we see the Spirit. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And there in verse 3, we see then God said, that is the Word, bringing everything into being out of nothing. And this Trinity exists before time began, before the beginning mentioned in verse 1. And it is this Trinity it is not nothing that comes forth with everything. It's not the magician bringing a rabbit out of his sleeve, but there's no magician and no sleeve. It's not the uh, virgin birth of the universe, but there's no virgin. It is actually love that was at the before the beginning. It isn't a bare chaos. One world fighting another, some Manichaean fight in a Star Wars fashion between evil side of the force and the good side of the force, as is described in the Enema Elish of the Babylonians, where somehow in the fight, Tiamat gets killed and thrown to the ground. And there he is, the dead fish on the bottom half. He is the rotting carcass that produces the earth. On the upper half, he is the rotting carcass that produces the heaven. If your life stinks, well, maybe it's because we're believing the material world. Maybe you're believing false things about where you came from. That's a stinking start to reality, if you ask me. This is not how it started. And it wasn't bare power, some unmoved mover of the Aristotelian philosophical world, distant part far from us, never going to show his face to us, the unmoved mover. No, and it wasn't bare power at the beginning. It was powerful love. And that is what brings forth this creation, a light which dispels the darkness. So verses 3 through 5, we see 
that life is prepared for. I shared all those verses before to show you that's the destiny of where we're going. When the light came, yes, it was shining on the face of the waters and the material world as it comes to play brings glory to God in its own way. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. All you have to see is the sunrise and the sunset. All you have to see is the beauties of the physical world. That in itself brings glory to God. But ultimately, material life is here to put as a stage for life generally and particularly human life. When God said, let there be light, it was so critical to this moment because it was shining over the face of the waters. Those waters, as you recall from last week, are waters. It's a Hebrew word that has a reference to light. Waters are a fluid that's pregnant with life. In the relationship between a man and a woman that brings forth babies, it's that fluid there that contains the potentiality of life. That's the very same word. And what an effect to go from the to home of the face of the deep, which is the abyss. But when the Holy Spirit hovers over it, it becomes the incubator for life. And so life at the very beginning of this chapter is alluded to and is concluded in the creation of humanity. This Light is a critical feature of the bringing forth of life because you have to have energy in order to have life. Now, energy by itself can't do it. You can't just be rocking electric volts through chemicals, as I shared last week in Yuri's experiment. It doesn't pan out because there has to be information. There has to be a combination of energy and information to give you life. Think of it this way. When light shines upon a leaf, you get the process of photosynthesis. You have adenosine diphosphate becoming adenosine triphosphate. ADP becomes ATP. And this energy then goes out into the cells, out where you see the ribosomes hanging on to the endoplasmic reticulum, and that ribosome becomes the manufacturing plant for the proteins. Those building blocks of the proteins are amino acids floating around in the cell, and that happens to be under the control of information. You've got the DNA inside the nucleus. You've got messenger RNA molecules going into the nucleus and coming out of it and carrying information to the ribosomes where these proteins, a very complex structure, are constructed out of the amino acids. This is an incredibly complex process. Energy alone won't do it. And as a matter of fact, as I talk about light here, I want to share with you this other thing that, that in this life that's created, you have in that place there a building up of order. Granted, physicists will tell us that as that order is made in the total system around life, 
the disorder increases. It's called entropy. So even though order increases in the organism, the total system experiences more disorder. You see in all the effluent that comes out of living beings, a very disordered form of energy. You got the breath coming out of my mouth when I'm walking outside. That is a very disordered breath that comes out. That's heat energy, very disordered. And I share this with you because I want you to know that is a critical argument from a scientific viewpoint that there was a creator, that on the whole, every physical transfer of energy has a conservation of energy. Energy is not destroyed. Energy is not made in any of the normal physical processes outside of nuclear reactions, which we'll leave on a side. In that case, matter is turned into energy. But leaving that on the side, this is no violation of the first law of th thermodynamics. In that second law of thermodynamics, in every transfer of energy, there is an increase in disorder. There is an increase in the technical word which physicists use, entropy. For example, I was out this week collecting some wood in the, behind my house. I stacked it behind a tree, and it's there to be burnt when I want to fire at our next open house, and we're making ole bowling and chestnuts or an open fire. Guess what happens when you burn that wood? A very ordered form of potential energy becomes a disordered form of energy, namely the heat, which goes off into the atmosphere. That is an example of conservation of energy, but increased entropy. And the man who wrote the standard textbook on thermodynamics, Gordon J. Van Weyland, was a born-again Christian, studied at MIT, was the dean of the engineering faculty at the University of Michigan, and then in 1972 became the president of Hope College where Stephen Mary attended. And this Christian college is where he exercised his ability as a Christian leader to point the academic world to Jesus. This man had a personal faith in Jesus Christ. And in his textbook written in 1959, he wrote these words. A final point to be made is that the second law of thermodynamics and the principle of increase in entropy have great philosophical implications. The question that arises, how did the universe get into the state of reduced entropy in the first place? Since all natural processes known to us tend to increase entropy. The author, now he's speaking of himself here, has found that the second law tends to increase his conviction that there is a creator who has the answer for the future destiny of man and the universe. This in the standard thermodynamics textbook used in secular universities across the country, a witness to the creator. If everything tends to increasing disorder, you must have had a very high order at the beginning, which comes from a creator, he says. He learned it at his mother's knee in a reformed home, 
But he looked into the book of nature to see the confirmation of that. He learned it by special revelation from the Bible. But he looked at the book of general revelation and saw there confirmation that there was a creator. And so I speak now on the second day. Not only is there preparation for life with let there be light and all the information that comes because Jesus, our eternal son of God, says, let there be light. You've got both the word and the energy. In the second day, there is room for life. In verses 6 through 8, we see where God begins a process of dividing and organizing the creation, dividing the waters from the waters. And what's happening here is that the waters that were one inchoate abyss, a mixture of water and the solid, which many uh, scholars think is, is just a disorganized picture of all the matter that God created at the beginning, that this uh, unformed, unshaped void now has a separation of the waters. The top layer of the waters goes above the firmament. And the waters underneath are the continuing amount of water and solid beneath. And when I was a kid, I never knew what they were talking about. Firmament. What is a firmament? It's basically, it's an expanse. It's a space between the clouds, that's the water up above, and the waters beneath, that's the earth. And that expanse is giving room for life. It's giving room eventually for plants to grow into that space. It's giving room for human beings and animals to run around on, in that space. It's basically room for life. And as you read there, it says, God called, verse eight, God called the firmament heaven. That word heaven simply means the lofty. It isn't a reference here in this context to the place of dwelling of God. We know God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But there is a certain place where I think of God on his throne and the right hand of the Father where the Son of Man reigns in glory. It's, it's not that heaven. It's the sky. It's the loftiness. It's the firmament. And my understanding is that that is the space that God is giving us, a space that he allows us to have to flourish as image bearers. So say this after me as a summary. The first day light, let me hear you say that. Life prepared for. The second day sky. Room for life. Now here I want to touch on what I understand by the days of creation. I told you last week I would share a little bit about this. As we're here on the second day of creation, I've just got to give you my take on it. Okay, there's a lot of different views on this, the length of the days. But my view is the 24-hour day. This is a, not a matter that I believe should separate Bible-believing Christians. Many who believe in what is called the old earth where days stand in for long ages of time, as many of the theologians at Princeton Seminary in the late 1800s held. These are some of my theological heroes, but I respectfully disagree with them. Actually, it was about five or six years ago, 
that I came to this conviction of 24-hour days. And I want you to have space. I want you to believe that Jesus created everything by the word. I think it's very important to believe that Adam and Eve were unique individuals created Adam out of the dust of the earth and Eve out of the rib of Adam. I think it's very important to realize they did not descend. And I don't believe you should be thinking that everything just evolved by random chance. But I have to say that we need some space, even in Bible-believing, evangelical, reformed churches, on the length of the days of creation. My view, and I follow Kelly on this, a great book which has been a blessing to me, that in the 119 instances of the Hebrew word yom standing with a numerical adjective, for example, the first day, the second day, the third day, whenever it's in the five books of Moses, it always refers to a 24-hour day. And the Ten Commandments, this is one Clint Traver brought to my attention about 10 years ago. I just share that to say, hey, sometimes it takes time for our views to change. You know, it takes time for us to think about things. And Clint was sharing this with me soon after I was here. He wasn't like, you know, he was just sharing his view. And I have to say to you, the fact that the Ten Commandments also talks about six days of creation, well, that's when everybody was having six-day weeks and then the Sabbath following. This is when people well knew what a day was. And it's in that very context that the days of creation are shared. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the Sabbath day. That's Exodus 20 and verse 11. And then we read of the plural of days in Exodus 20:11. When the plural is used, according to Kelly, in the 702 instances of the plural days in the Old Testament, it always means literal days. And then Genesis 1:14, the fourth day on. You see there in Genesis 1:14, then God said, "Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night." And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Those lights are the sun and the moon. They establish 24-hour days and months and seasons. So my view is that right here in the creation account, we have an understanding of the day as being a literal 24-hour day. I want to share with you that this does lead to some potential conflict with some of the scientific, which is considered to be the accepted results of modern physics. I'm pretty sure Gordon Van Weyland would not be agreeing with me on the young earth. I want to say to you that there are some explanations given by Douglas Kelly. It could have something to do with Psalm 104. O oh Lord, you are my God. You are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. Some scientists have theorized that the stretching out of the heavens speaks to the whole issue of the space-time continuum and quantum mechanics, and that there was something going on there that allowed a passage of time, and that it is still consistent with these regular, regular days. And others have talked about changes in the speed of light as 
are described in this book. I am not going to go into all of that, but I want to share with you that there are values that we have to think about when we interpret the scripture. First is the value of harmonizing, making things make sense in context, okay? And that's something I always try to do. I try to help you make sense of things in context. There's also the value of textual integrity. These are two values which I think we have to hold. We have to hold both of them. And when I saw a man like Andy McIntosh holding forth on this issue about seven years ago in a church south of here, and when I hear men like Douglas Kelly hold forth on this, I tend toward the integrity of the text. I tend to go to the special revelation first, and if I can't fit everything together from the book of nature, I will allow that supposed contradiction to exist in my mind. That's where I'm coming from. I'm just giving you my take on it, and may God bless you as you figure this out. And I welcome you to borrow this book, but not until I finish the preaching series, okay? Let's go on, and let's go on to the third day, and let's consider this rubric, the first day light. Life prepared for. The second day sky. Room for life. The third day land and plants. Life takes root. So here we see that on the third day, we finally get around to God saying it is good again. He said it was good when the light was made in day one. And he didn't say it on day two, and some scholars think that it was omitted there because the infrastructure was not complete until day three. The infrastructure, the grounding of where life was going to flourish. Where we had it before, we had the waters above the clouds, the waters beneath this in these waters that are pregnant with life. And now we have a separation, again, a division. We have a gathering together into one place. Verse 9, the waters are gathered together into one place. I consider that the one place to be the worldwide oceans. You know, the oceans are basically connected. you got the Atlantic Ocean, you got the Pacific Ocean, but around the base of uh, South America, they're connected, okay? So it's basically one expanse of ocean, but then the land, the dry land appears. It doesn't say the land is only in one place. But the dry land appears, arises from those waters, again a gathering and a division. And when that happens, you now have space for plants to be planted, for animals to be created to run on that dry land, and human beings to be specially created in the Garden of Eden. So, having said that, and having seen that the plants are planted, God saw that it was good at the end of verse 12. Please note the language here. Verse 11, bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree. Some Hebrew scholars say the grass is a general category for all plants. And there are basically two types. 
the herb that yields seed. You might think of a wheat field that has seed in it. You might then also think of the alternative, a fruit tree, an apple tree, where you have a whole piece of fruit which provides nourishment to other animals. And so these two types reproduce according to their kind. And this speaks to us the fact that there is an inherent diversity that is placed there by God. That we don't have, you know, banana trees evolving from wheat fields. Uh, we don't have apple trees evolving from peanuts. We have their kinds. And within the kinds, there is a microevolution. We see different types of tomatoes. You got the yellow tomatoes. You got the high acid tomatoes. You got all kinds of beautiful tomatoes. And within their kind, there can be microevolution. But between the kinds, we do not see macroevolution. Because that would mean bringing brand new information to something. And that's not true according to evolution. You can't have an infusion of information because there's no God. And I see no way whatsoever for evolution to have come up with the highly ordered groups of plants that we see in our world. And so I want to encourage you today as you consider these three days, see they are on a glide path toward animals, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and at the apex of creation, humanity. And I would encourage you to think on these things, that all life that is out there needs to be respected. I know one of our elders was speaking on Wednesday night of this, and he said that, you know, if you grow up in a home where it's tolerated that the kids can abuse the animals and kick them around and taunt them and just do whatever they want to the animals. Well, basically, you end up with a guy who's going to grow up and beat up his wife and treat human beings disrespectfully. You, you just raise the ante when you go from childhood to adulthood. All living things should be respected. We should also realize that God has created human beings at the apex of creation. We must pay special attention to the sanctity of human life. We do not believe in the sanctity of life in general. We are not those Hindus who can't walk around without stepping on a ant. I'm sorry, that's not what the Bible teaches. Human beings are created in the image of God. And on this sanctity of human life Sunday, I wanted to say it's so important that we are valuing life in the womb, that spiritually we are helping people get to that place where although they may feel insecure, they may be surprised by a pregnancy, that they will not destroy that life. We're, we're working and praying for hearts to be changed. But we are also working for laws to be changed, that we would seek legal protection. Far too often, we just do an either or. You get people coming along and say, well, it's the hearts, you gotta go win them for Jesus. And in the meantime, there's a whole generation being killed. And you got these people over here who are going to trust in the law. And they don't believe in the primacy of the preaching of the gospel. You got to hold them both together. And we need to be people who are pro-life 
in the womb and pro-life for senior citizens in nursing homes and pro-life for women who are single and we are gonna help them get the food they need and the care they need. I was just down in Pittsburgh and we saw the baptism of our little baby <sighs> granddaughter. I'm in one of those teary moments again. <laughs> and I'm just saying, you know that church down there, they just have a whole room full of diapers. You know, it's like they don't do the food thing, but they do the diaper thing really big time. And anybody who needs diapers in Cannonsburg or the country around it knows where to go. Go to uh, the Re Anglican Parish of Christ the Redeemer. I'm just saying we got to be people who care about people before birth and after birth. And I just want to encourage you to come to Christ. If you don't believe in him yet, if you need him in your life, come to Christ that the light would shine forth in your heart, that you would believe that Christ is the Redeemer and the Creator. Let us pray. Bless these dear ones. I pray, O oh God, that we will understand your word and that we would rightly divide the word of truth. Help us, O oh God, to honor and worship you, the creator of all, and the one who has given us a focus on how we can live in this world, serving a lost and dying world by serving you, O oh Christ, in the midst of it. And we 